Rising. This is your community storyteller, Trill Mama, and revered MC. Shavanda brings the thunder. Here with my co-host and KRSM station manager, Andrea Pierre. And this is our show, Power Perspectives, where we talk about policy, art, building power, self-care, and community life in Minneapolis. First you get the money. 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 Republican challenger Jim Schultz by a very slim margin, just over 20,000 votes, a huge victory for progressives. Today, we have three very special guests with us to just go over what the election results were and what they mean for the state of Minnesota and for our community. We have Tabitha Montgomery. Over the past 20 years, Tabitha's professional experience continues to include a range of leadership opportunities that foster and necessitate leading from a posture of service to others. Within a nonprofit context, she has led marketing functions, lines of business, and teams focused on strategic innovation for several Fortune 500 companies, including Target and Best Buy. Within a nonprofit space, she currently serves as the executive director for the Powderhorn Park Neighborhood Association while serving in board leadership for several nonprofit boards. Tabitha has spent more than two decades tapping into her gifts of management communication, and visioning to serve a wide array of people, businesses, and organizations. We also have joining us Dr. Serene today. They are an Arab-American journalist and educator who works at the intersections of journalism, social movement development, experiential education and sustainability. She was trained as a community organizer by the former Organizing Apprenticeship Project, OAP, now Voices for Racial Justice. She has written for local, national, and international publications and is committed to using journalism as a tool in the pursuit of justice for all historically disenfranchised communities. Today produces and hosts the the Radical News Radio Hour and the new podcast, at the intersections and is the founder of the Journalism of Color Training Center. Today is the outgoing executive director for The Uptake, a community news organization and associate faculty at Prescott College, where she received her PhD in sustainability education in 2019. Last, certainly not least, Wintana Melikin is an Eritrean American based in St. Paul, Minnesota, with over a decade of experience passing policy and electing progressive candidates. She became a community organizer after attending a protest for Trayvon Morton in 2012 that she helped to organize. Melikin is a believer in a representative democracy where everyone's voice is heard regardless of race, religion, class, or sexual orientation. When Thomas centers her life around the creation of joy and fighting for justice. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Three extraordinary guests. We're so excited to have you. Some in the studio, some are via Zoom joining us from all parts of the world, I'm going to say, because I know Wintana is not in Minnesota right now. Um, But yeah, I love that last line of your bio, Wintana centers her life around the creation of joy and fighting for justice, because our grounding question that we ask everyone is what is bringing you joy today? 
these days or recently? And so I pose that question to you all. What's bringing y'all joy? Man, this moment. Mm. Being up here with all you fabulous people who are committed to serving and being in community in a real way and naming real issues, Mm. um, but not from a place of what we don't have, but Mm. what we can do. So I'm just excited to be here this morning. I think that's what's bringing me joy um, in the early hours (laughs) of November 10th. Come on. Solution-oriented. Come on. (laughs) See, we're not coming from a deficit, but from abundance. Listen, you better get it. (laughs) Ashe. What about you, Serena and Wintana? Yeah, I can go ahead and go next. Um, I know for me, I'm really sitting in the joy of the election results. Mm. Uh, For a lot of folks, there's always this idea that post uh, the president's first years, that first midterm, everything goes south. And we really just saw the opposite. Every single state that had abortion on the ballot voted to support it. Um, every most of the progressive measures, ballot measures won. I mean, we won states. We didn't expect to win. The results are just um, phenomenal. And to be transparently honest, it was because of you know black and brown communities showing up to vote. And we haven't had a majority in Minnesota since 2012. So I'm really excited for the first day of session to show up and demand some things. So overall, I'm just like happy with how things you know shook out when everyone is expecting the worst. mind. I was really nervous for election night and maybe because I had fallen into some of the polling narratives and things like that but I I remember going into election night feeling like it was back in the 2010 midterm the first midterm after President Obama was elected and thinking it's going to be a complete wash and we're going to have to rebuild a lot of stuff after tonight and we don't. We get to use the results of the election. Um, I mean, that's that's the first step of the work, but it's the first step instead of instead of the negative one hundredth step. So I've got a lot of joy in knowing that we get to actually push um, both houses of the legislature this session and the governor's office. That we get every office. It's going to be really powerful. Yep. So my question is kind of. You know, Minneapolis, we saw it was, well, campaigns are always negative, first of all, but we saw a lot of talk about Minneapolis and crime and that narrative being used. Um, And we saw that Jacob Frey used it in the last election to get, you know, elected is talking about crime and being tough on crime and needing police and things like that. They kept on showing the picture of Powderhorn Park in Tabitha as someone who runs the Powderhorn Park Neighborhood Association. How does it feel to see uh, an area just so entrenched in your work being used so negatively. And what would you like to say to these elected officials that basically just splash the park across the scene with this one, with the banner saying defund and things like that on there? Like, can you just tell us what that meant to you as someone who is so entrenched in the work there? Um, the first thing I'll say is I think that I'm often sobered by the fact that I think that our community, um, and when I say our community, meaning Powderhorn, South Minneapolis, Greater Powderhorn, is smarter than propaganda. Mm. 
you know, so I think that people make choices all the time. I, I'm not trying to ever present, prevent people from making choices to be narrow-minded or to, to be sensational in their approach to actually trying to deal with real issues. That's their choice. But what I'm sobered by, what I'm encouraged by, is that I serve a community that is not um, that is not easily swayed by a person's propaganda or the idea of putting out pictures that attempts to convey images of this is what's all wrong with um, Minneapolis or South Minneapolis or areas that predominantly house folks of color or, or and racially and diverse cultural communities. I think ultimately what I would say to any person, elected or otherwise, that tends to take the easy route in terms of trying to build momentum for what they believe is that in the end, that continues to contribute to incremental gains and the real solutions that we need because it's so focused on optics and not action. You know, the optics of focusing on um, safety broadly and violent crime broadly as our core issue and never continuing to mention the increase in um, generational youth suicide and or violence on person, women and, and, and youth, um, transgendered youth in particular in our community as not being seen as a part of our safety problems is again a reflection of people who I think are not seriously trying to think about how do we become well and not how do we continue to just maintain what we have. There are some people who benefit not only from what we have, but don't believe that they have the skill, the, the vision to really approach our communities from a place of what could be and to really demand and, and prioritize how do we get there and not just name it, but to actually resource it in terms of with funding and policies that can actually move the needle. That's hard work. That's not oftentimes the type of work that gets you reelected. In fact, that typically gets you one term, which I say embrace that. Just lean into that. Show up in the posture of I'm, I'm about to do real work and I'm going to serve you for a season so somebody else can serve you after me. When people are so focused on not only their current move, but their next move, we often see that our communities suffer because then we are then in the position to continue to talk about the same disparities we talked about 10 years ago and 20 years ago and 30 years ago because we sometimes elect the person that can be seen, perceived as safe, that we potentially perceived as easy to understand, but not the person who is willing to actually get us beyond this moment, to get us to a place of well-being, because that's the hard work. Wow. When Well, so what just really hit me was what you said about electing the person that feels like safe, whether it's somebody who's going to change the narrative. And that's kind of how I viewed the Hennepin County attorney race, you know, and that and the big story there is that the progressive prosecutor, Mary Moriarty, defeated by a larger more margin than expected former Judge Martha Holton Dimmitt, who ran on a law and order platform. So we saw last year with um, the question to, you know, change from having a, a police um, state, kind of having that policing mm -hmm. to having a more comprehensive um, plan for community, um, uh, uh, something that was going to be more community-centered um, and holistic, and, you know, it didn't win. Mm -hmm. it, we didn't, and that didn't pass. And so I think a lot of folks were, had fear, mm -hmm. you know, around that. And so it's like, well, let's just go with what we know. Exactly. Um, and so I was really curious how that was going to play out with the with the Hennepin County attorney. And so we saw that big change. And there were, I mean, there's so there's so much more. You know, it's Dewana Witt as the next Hennepin County sheriff. Um, you know, 
you won big with Tim Waltz, you know, um, what was what's the impact of the results of this election cycle? Um, Can I say, though, I think that what you just brought up about the uh, county attorney, what is salient that I want to share is that people are ready. Make no mistake. People are ready for change. We get nervous because we don't always know how to get there. Mm -hmm. And sometimes options are presented to people that make them believe that they're going to have to build that change muscle overnight. But people are ready. And so this idea that we're going to continue to revert back Mm -hmm. to these ideas that we all know are not true. We all know that our current state of uh, well-being is not solely dependent or reliant in any way on our current state of policing. This is not law and order. Mariska Hargitay is not just going to show up and solve the case within the last 10 minutes of whatever that took place. Like, that's not what's happening. And so people want community to be well. And and when we say safe, we mean safe for everybody to walk down the street, safe for a person who is in a state of addiction to be able to easily find those resources and for people to be able to smile at them and walk up to them and to present solutions to them that are actually readily available and not the promise of housing that will take two months or three months in order to obtain and not just 60 day or 90 day treatment, but long term, highly expensive and high quality and high fidelity treatment that people can access when they are ready in order to be make pivots and changes in their lives. So sometimes when we use things like abolition, because the word I think uh, has for in community this negative connotation and negative construct with it, people can confuse what people don't necessarily understand is not being ready for better. And that's a lot from the pits of hell. We are ready for better, even though sometimes we don't always know how to get there. Yeah, no, definitely. And the folks who ran the campaign for that amendment, they see it as a win because it was a close race. Mm-hmm. So right. so that does denote that folks are ready for change. And I even ran into um, folks who were trying to, um, who, were, who wanted to go against that and who were, like, trying to get folks to petition, like, against. I was like, no, we're, we don't want to defund the police. We don't want to do any of that. And I started talking to them. I said, well, do you know what this what what this means to like have a plan or to have a department of public safety you know um and as i begin to have conversation with them folks change their mind like i was like okay you've converted like let me have your shirt <laughs> like let me take this this hoodie that you have that's proclaiming something else if now you're understanding what it means for us to um really have a say in how our neighborhoods are governed so, but yeah, other, you know, other opinions with Tana and Serene. Yeah, I would, I would, I, this is my, this is my jam. I'm dying <laughs> to talk about this. Um, one thing I want to talk about is that question two, um, question two didn't win. Yes, we know that, that happened. But it came very close. And also that campaign was run by a squad of folks that pulled it together within weeks. Mm. The lawsuit after lawsuit after lawsuit that they received really deterred their ability to build a ramp up. The right, when I mean, and when I say the right, I mean Republicans, alt-right, far-right, aligned with centrist Dems, which is not something we've seen in Minneapolis. That was a new phenomenon where they coordinated with each other and they barely won. I mean, it was a big margin if it was a regular campaign, but it was one of the most historic issue campaigns in Minnesota history. I say that to say, though, is that we ended up happened after that is that center stems assume that this meant we had a conservative mandate, but Minneapolis does not have a conservative mandate. The constituents, even the wealthiest neighborhoods like Ward 13, do not want a state where police officers are 
murdering people. No matter what the centrist Dems try to sell us. And if you look into 2022, they ran a slate of people for the state house and senate. They all lost in their primaries. They run down Samuels against Ilhan. Mm-hmm. He lost every single precinct where a person of color lived, including his own over North. Mm-hmm. You look at Mayor Moriarty blew everybody out in the primary and the jump. Like progressives want everything in 2022. There was not a race left that they did not annihilate things. There is no conservative mandate. People do not obsess over public safety in a toxic way that the extreme right and the center centrist Democrats coordinated this imagery around. And we're seeing it right now with that new program in Minneapolis that they're saying solves crime and everyone's like, but crime goes down every winter. Like we're not dumb, you know? They really tried to spin this narrative by partnering with the right. And that's just not who Minneapolis and Twin Cities are. The voters, the constituents are a lot smarter than that. I will say, Public safety is an issue. We are seeing an, an increase in crime. But this propaganda that weaponizes crime but never actually solves or provides material improvements to conditions of people experiencing the crime doesn't resonate in the same way. Like, yeah, you can say it all day, but if you're not showing up with a plan to address it, you just kind of look off. And that's what ended up happening. And so folks went with the progressive candidates because they realized oh, this is, they're just lying to us. They're just, they're just, you know, trying to get us hyped up. And we had a slate of people in 2022, all the way in early of the year, running in primaries, all the way to election day, and every single one of them won. They didn't have a single win this year. And that's because people are not falling for the propaganda. And it's very clear that there isn't a mandate for them to be in charge. 2021 was just an anomaly with the, with the way the conditions were with the way the movement ecosystem was, with the way that messaging occurred. And these alliances of like the corporations and Democrats coordinating with each other, that doesn't work in the Midwest. It doesn't work in Minnesota. People are not going to be happy when they start looking through these finance reports in a couple of weeks and realize the CEO of U.S. Bank and Wells Fargo were donating to all these conservative candidates. It's, it doesn't resonate. And, and folks picked up on that early. And I'm really excited to see what happens with the St. Paul and Minneapolis city elections. I think people are fed up with being fed these lies and having their own personal safety weaponized. So I just want to say that because it's just I'm like, people really act like progressives are losing, but it's like, no, it's ours to take. And so that's just kind of where my, my heart's at. But can I also say, though, and I'm, then I'm going to let Serene chime in, is I think that, yeah, we, we are definitely beyond the propaganda and yet we have to help not squander this moment. So we have to be really intentional about not just caring about winning elections, but winning the issue. We need more resources in our community in a balanced way that actually drives the outcomes that we want. Outcomes do matter, right? So we have to be ready as a community to partner and support the people that have been elected to be actually able to implement changes and not just in a decade, not in the next five years, but now. I think the only thing this year that got close to winning was narrative and the ways in which stories are used either for or against the work. Um, I mean, clearly the narratives didn't go far enough that we lost because we didn't. Uh, We won really across the board, but I still think there was 
a narrative that was really influential over people. And it was only the strength of the organizing that countered that, that narrative. And, and I think we're seeing that across the, the country. I mean, Lauren Bobart in Colorado's third district is currently losing by about 65 votes. And they're both at 50-50. And that, she was expected to win by 20 points. So this is, that's huge. But it's still, and that's because there's so much about the storytelling that impacts how we think about this. But also this election opens up so much. I mean, over the next few years, if we do the organizing and we have legislators in power that, you know, respond to that and aren't working kind of hand in hand with corporate interests, we're going to be able to push for some really powerful things in Minnesota. And we're going to see things not come to the table. We're not going to have legislation come to the table that criminalizes queerness. You know, we're not going to see that come to the table, and that's going to be a big deal, too. And already, parents and MPS are talking about how are we going to, you know, what are we going to do to organize for funding from state, you know, for our schools? We're going to see an investment in public school funding. Um, I really expect that to see happen. I mean, just the things that are going to come out of this, but I, we're still going to have to deal with the storytelling piece of this and how we talk about this, how we make people see that seat at the table, how we talk about solidarity and being an ally and accomplice to the work. We're going to have to talk about why these races are still so close in many places when they shouldn't have been. I mean, like, we can't deny the fact that they went after you know, Attorney General Ellison with everything that they had. Mm-hmm. And it's only because he's a strong candidate that he won. And so we need to really think about how we deconstruct the stories that are being told and how we offer and meaningful alternatives and then tell meaningful stories about those alternatives. Because we do really well on the ground, but I don't think we do, we do great storytelling about the work that's happening. And I think there's some, some work to happen there. Um, so I had a real quick question because I, I've been seeing a lot uh, that we have a trifecta, that we got the trifecta. What does that mean? Can we define trifecta? Well, that's all yeah. as a government, right? Like when we say we got the House, we got the Senate, we got the governorship. Yeah. We actually have more than the trifecta. I mean, we've always had, or at least this year, always had the auditor, the attorney general. All of these are, you know, DSL endorsed candidates and not speaking about the value of the DSL or its perfections or imperfections in any way, but we actually do. And I was reading something today from David Brower on Twitter. We have um, a Supreme Court justice, I believe, that's going to be retiring in the next couple of years. And it would give space for any of the sitting Supreme Court justices to retire without worrying about um, stepping on, which um, I believe the sitting Supreme Court justice that's retiring is was a GOP-named Supreme Court justice. So it would flip that power bill. I mean, it's already a primarily down, but it would flip that a bit. Um, I'm going to pull out the tweet so I can actually get it for you exactly. But, I mean, it's, it's a big deal. Mm-hmm. I, and one thing I wanted to add, I... I don't identify as a DSLer. I am often aligned with the party. I volunteer and do work with them, but I'm left of them, just, you know, and so I'm always cautious around celebrating that terminology, but I'll say the terminology that is really big for me 
So that means we're actually going to pass abortion policies um, soon. And I think that is also something to resonate with, is that a DFL majority doesn't always mean, like, a racial justice majority. And I actually think, and we, you know, we're only, I think, up in the, by one in the Senate, so it's not, like, foolproof, we can do whatever we want. But I do think that over the years, folks have been really pushing for not just candidates to be Democrats, but to be progressive, to be pro-choice, and um, I'm really excited about the fact that that's what we have. Um, the other thing I'll add is pairing Keith with Mary Moriarty. I mean, we're talking about a reframing of the criminal justice system from two of the smartest legal minds, like not just progressives, but like brilliant legal scholars. And we have an opportunity to like actually repair harm. Um, what we have in uh, the new Senate leadership, I mean, the folks that are talking about putting in charge are, are amazing. Like, it's a whole different universe. This is the thing I'll add. We're all excited. We all want to go home and take a break, which we should. Rest is important. But I worked my butt off to win in 2012. We elected a majority. We went and we, were, and we did all this. Uh, we passed policies. I begged them. I said 950 is not a good minimum wage. Just go for 15, and then maybe later we'll figure it out. We lost the majority. We begged for all these things in 2012. They said next year, next year. We lost the majority. We haven't won it again until right now. And so what we can't do is when the session starts, let people punt it to next year, next time. We just have to win again. We have to win again. We don't know when we're going to win again. We need to be bold and do things that impact constituents and and provide community with wins so we give them reasons for, for us again but also we might lose it and so let's make sure that we address the social justice and racial justice bills that we need to get done asap and and don't you know politically posture and get too scared and all of that let's get it done asap january you go in write the bills let's get them passed um and let's get it done so we're not waiting another decade hoping we get this opportunity again category that you can possibly imagine from wealth to education to home ownership, you name it, we are trailing in it. And we have some of the largest foundations, some of the most active community members in all the land. And so what we have to do is to figure out, are we willing to name what it will cost in order to win, in order to hold ourselves accountable, in order to hold our elected leaders accountable? I often think we don't know the cost of clearly applying the right pressure because then we show up very event-based, very episodic, very let's get it done now and not necessarily having a full core, a full a full plan in place about being 40 and 50 and 60 steps ahead of not only the people that we've elected, but certainly the people that we did not. Absolutely. So this is a perfect segue. And then I want to pass it to Sabrina because I know she has a burning question. But with an all blue state, many of us now have these newly inspired hope for wild dreams of policy change. In what ways can we hold the Senate and House accountable as we move forward? Like you were saying, how do we win these issues? And what when Tom was saying about getting it done now that we have these seats in place. My first thing is we got to name the cost. Don't, don't keep sending me and my community and, and nonprofit organizations out here to actually change the trajectory of 
hundreds of years, generational social issues on a shoestring budget. And so one of the things that we have to look at is truly the philanthropic industrial complex and where the money comes from and what we can't do with the money that we get. And so then we have to say, if we know that in order to be effective, if we know in order to have the right people in place, pushing and coordinating and driving our agenda forward within in partnership with our elected leaders, we need to know the cost of that and not try to get people to do that for no money to the point of exhaustion where they can't rest, where there's no resources, there's no bench. There is no bench to keep the movement alive when we run into lawsuits, when we run into problems, when we hit hurdles. You still want people to put that hurdle on their back and get it over the finish line, under-resourced, undervalued, and not prepared. I say in, own, in order to take advantage of this moment, we have to serious, be serious about what it means to be ready. And we have to tell the community what it looks like to be ready and tell them the cost of being prepared and ready and go get that money, either from them, because certainly it's not going to come through the foundations who've already said, oh, we can't let you lobby on any particular issue in order to change your condition. But you can keep coming to us and asking us about what we think our theory of change is and what we're willing to fund. And it's not our lived experience, it's your experience, but we're going to keep telling you how to go beyond your experience. And I say, we have to give that back to them. We're going to give them back every broken tool. We're going to give them everything back that has not served us well. In this moment, we say we know the cost and we're going to get this money however we need to get this money to build an infrastructure in order to not only apply positive pressure, but in order to resist. <laughs> positive pressure, good trouble, you know. I'm feeling Nina Simone's. Sarah, weigh in. The other thing is, keep in mind, we have a, a nine, uh, what is it? A, we have a massive surplus. I think it's over $9 billion. Yes, we do. It's down to eight. eight That's something we can use. I mean, even if we put a chunk of that in a savings account for the next emergency, and I'm not saying it's not going to happen because it's inevitable it will, we still have money to use to fund the things that we are talking about, um, to make real change. And, and when we're talking about things like reforming, um, for example, in Minnesota, for those of us getting student loan relief, this is we're one of the few states that will get taxed for the student loan forgiveness that we get because it's part of our tax code. With the, with the progressive legislature, not a DSL legislature, but as we come in order to progressive legislature, we might actually be able to make some movement on reforming that tax code so that we're not taxed for our student loan release. On top of a massive surplus with all of that investment, I mean, it, it's, um, it, it is an unbelievable chess board we are looking at as community members. I mean, it is, I've never seen um, um, anything like this. And I've been reporting on the legislature since 2010. I've never seen anything like this before. Mm -hmm. So my question really is just like about the youth. What do you see the youth um, and how what their needs and wants are? I just saw um, someone more on the right side of politics saying that they want to even increase like the the voting age to twenty one because the youth really came out and showed out this election and voting their values and what their um, their concerns are. So how do you see us really making sure we continue to motivate the youth and connect with them to make sure that they are participating in this legislative process? Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll answer both the questions together. Um, so the first thing that we had just talked about uh, 
the thing that I think we have to be prepared for is that every time we win, they tell us to wait. They tell us to hold on. It's too big. I think we just don't do that. When we had the majority in 2012, we had far less people of color elected to office. We had far, far less people who understood political, uh, political science and all of that and how to write a bill. We've now had tons of folks working at not tons. We've had more than last time working in the state legislature, know how to design policy. And I think folks need to be spending and, you know, spending this time putting an agenda together. Like, I just spent all day yesterday for five hours working with a group of Black educators putting together their legislative agenda. And everyone needs to be doing that. Building coalitions. If you have an idea, like, email it to your rep, but also, like, call your friends together, figure out how you can coordinate, call the nonprofit you work with, ask them their legislative agenda, be prepared to put pressure on them on day one. So I'm telling you, before the polls even closed, labor unions and nonprofits were already meeting with leadership, talking about the 2020 agenda, particularly about the surplus and all of that. Like, Walls is an education candidate. He's going to fund our school system. We have to make sure Minneapolis is funded in the right way since it's in a really precarious situation. And we just have to put our foot on the gas and insert ourselves into every single conversation and don't let anything happen that doesn't involve us. The other thing I'll say about young people, um, young people, people of color, women, really want this election. But at the end of the day, the majority is still run by old white men. And we have to make sure that the folks that won the election are the folks that are intersecting all of these conversations, are the ones submitting the most agendas, and really inter interfering in all of that. You said it spot on. They want to increase the voting age to 21. Here's the thing, Minnesota is projected to be majority minority by 2040 because the majority of this young people, majority of young people in the majority of students in Minneapolis and St. Paul are brown right now, black and brown. They're going to be 18 pretty soon. They're going to like close their eyes, open them, and they're going to be voters. And they're already working on ways to restrict voting rights in Minnesota. People love that Minnesota has the best voting system in the country when it's mostly white people voting. But now that we're seeing people of color increase turnout in really wild ways, they're going to do everything we can to suppress the vote. So one of the top priorities that has to happen in this next legislature is doing everything we can to improve our electoral system because we don't know when we'll get a majority again. We have to do everything we can to protect democracy because protecting it today saves us if for 20 years from now, when we're trying to hopefully stop 20 years from now that we try to run our own governor, but when we do run a governor, we don't have messed up voting laws like in Georgia that will prevent it from becoming possible. And so, yes, I just, the thing I say is make an agenda, call your rep, put some ideas together, talk to your neighbors, send them to your rep, demand things from your rep, coordinate with the organizations in your neighborhood, figure out their agendas, and then to protect you know, the next generation protect voting rights so that they actually have the ability to participate politically in, in 10 years when, when Gen Alpha is the majority. Can I just double down on a couple of things that you said specifically about let's do the hard shit now. Let's do the big stuff. Let's not kick the can. Let's not pretend, not just because of what we might, when we may not win again, but that has been the mandate. Since this country started taking a census, it would suggest that we have been waiting. We have been waiting to write the itch, the, the policies to, to revert the, the legislated uh, ways of oppression that this country has placed upon black and brown bodies because of the 
truth and reality. So this idea that we should wait to the to the big stuff so that we don't make people nervous, so that we demonstrate that we are willing to be uh, collaborative, that we are willing to um, bring more people into the party, we need not fool ourselves about that uh, that 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 particular statement because that too is propaganda. We need to understand that this country is two states. We tell you know Israel and Palestine Palestine all the time find a two state solution. What we don't want to admit is that we have been two nations <laughs> probably since inception, and so we need to get serious about what and how and who should the policies and the system serve for the next two generations, because we know who the system and the policies and this has served up until this point. Right on, and so this year. So we are in a biennium, right? We're in a budget here. Should we be knocking on the doors of the heads of state agencies who will be asking for money uh, coming up in 2023? Department of Housing, Education, all of that. I will say, people will tell you, this is, I, I was just saying this to someone. They'll tell you, oh, this is a biennium, we don't do policy, or, oh, this is a policy, we don't do budgets, or the bill has to be submitted by this day. The rules are made up. Like, mm. COVID has taught us, they will tell us they have no money for reparations, and then have billions of dollars that they can just give to anyone, you know? And so, yes, there are rules and regulations. I've learned them, I use them. But also remember, when they want to do something, they get it done. When power demands things of them, they respond. And so, yes, it is a budget year. We should be demanding things. Like, I'm already talking to the Department of Public Safety, like, yeah, how, how are you going to restore voting rights? What's our, what's our plan, Chanel? Like, you know, like, we're already, we're doing that. But also remembering that if they want to, they can. I've had bills completely die, and then all of a sudden, it's an omnibus it should have never been inside of because somebody wanted it. And so I just remind us that, like, Learn the rules, learn the systems, all of it, but also know when they want something, they just change the rules, and we can do that same thing and just be willing to be innovative. But yes, come at every state agency, call them, talk to them, have the conversations, make demands, um, ask to participate, and all of that, but also know if you want to pass policy, you probably can because the rules are made up. You know, you might as well try and see what happens. Yeah, and can you break down omnibus uh, bills as well? We, we, we had a really important thing pass in one, the legalization of marijuana passed through an omnibus bill. What is What does that mean for folks yeah. listening? Omnibus, it's also sometimes called the Frankenstein bill. It's like its nickname. It's when a committee, so you write a bill, and then a legislator is the author of it. That bill then goes to a committee related to its content. So an education bill goes to education. An education committee, that chair writes a bill called an omnibus. It's really just like a catch-all. It's a bunch of bills thrown together, and they're really just saving it for the very end of session so they can negotiate. Well, this bill died, this other bill died here, and this bill was too controversial, so we're just going to add it here. And it's just, honestly, it's not a good thing. It's really like uh, secret politics, but it is a way to pass policy. It's not the best thing that we should be, it shouldn't exist, but it does. Um, and it's an opportunity to have kind of like a catch-all for a group of legislation related to a specific issue area. So there's an omnibus for public safety, there's an omnibus for education, et cetera, et cetera. And then they pretty much use it to negotiate and wield things at the end of session 
um, mostly in private. But if you get your bill inside of an omnibus, it gives it kind of a second chance to pass. There's this new trend we're even seeing where people don't even try to get their bill through all the other steps. They just get it into an omnibus and wait till private negotiations and see what they can get done. And so it really, it's just a catch-all bill that they throw all this stuff in and then they throw things out and add things at the end of session so that they can see what they can negotiate for. Um, yeah. Hopefully that makes sense. No, that was it. That was a great explanation. Thank you. There is one piece of the process of the legislative session that I think people should be aware of. For the last few years, the House under Dem control has been primarily virtual because of COVID. Um, so the Zoom meetings, things like that. And I will say, even as a journalist with an office in the Capitol, um, it has been hard to access legislators and access communities organizing around the legislature because of that virtual nature. It's been easier to do Senate stuff because the Senate was under GOP control. I'm not sure what the Dems plans for this legislative session is in terms of keeping it virtual, primarily whatever they're going to be doing. But I do think we need to be advocating for greater access, even in COVID times, to the legislative process because it is that lack of access that I think is going to be one of the bigger challenges to pushing things forward. I mean, I, it is really hard to get into those virtual spaces. I mean, you can watch it, but unless you're really testifying you're not in the you're not in the zoom room you know you're not there you're not part of that conversation it's the same even for the reporters a lot of the time it's just really hard to to see what's going on and to put pressure on those people especially if they're not even working from the capital so i think um and, and by and large they are working from the capital but they're still virtual so that you know you're not running into them in the, in the halls or running into them in the in, in the cafeteria or running into them at the food trucks outside where you can strike up those conversations and you know just talk with them and so i do think we need to be aware of the accessibility conversation when it comes to the organizing and how we balance safety and public health with um, organizing and sort of pushing for the big changes that often require that face-to-face -face interaction so i think that's one conversation we had and then the other one is um there's a few really good community news organizations or issue-based organizations in and around the capital um, that we should be paying some attention to. Uh, the Reformer is doing some work. Um, Sahed Journal has always done some work. Uh, the Uptake is going to be doing some work. There's you know, some really good organizations on there. And I'm a big believer that we need to stop investing our time in the big legacy and mainstream media organizations that are never going to have communities back and start investing in the community level, even, even in the journalism side of things. Tabitha had to leave, unfortunately, but, so we want to do thank that Tabitha Montgomery for being on from Powderhorn Park Neighborhood Association. Yes. Uh, they work as the executive director and just want to thank them for uh, taking time out of their busy day for being there. They actually are having a Southside Summit tomorrow at the W. Um, if you are interested in attending that and hearing more from Tabitha. So just thank you for your time. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, I wanted to bring in this tweet from Lee Fink for Minnesota House, that one. Many stories will be written about Minnesota's election. One deniable story 
One undeniable story is the rise of queer political power. 11 LGBTQ candidates for the legislature, 11 victories. In those 11 victories are many firsts. Let's make trouble onward. And just wanted to say, like, what does it mean to have this representation politically? Representation of? This queer representation politically. Uh, a part of me feels, yeah, I, mean, I don't want to take up space because I'm not, you know, not in the queer community. Um, so if anyone wants to go before me, please do. Um, uh, the only thing I'll add is, like, the person most near and dear to me in politics is EMQ, Aramay Quaid. Um, I feel like that's, like, my work life in politics. And I can't even explain how happy I am that she won as uh, she's the first black woman candidate that announced she was running, and she's the first black woman elected to the Senate. Um, my heart is just, like, so full over it. As someone, you know, she's just, like, an openly queer woman and got bullied a lot at the legislature when she was in the state house. She called out, she called out Dan Schoen, uh, someone who was a police officer and a senator, and he ended up losing his seat. He got removed from the legislature because of all the things he was doing. And EMQ has just been a champion for queer issues, for black issues. And like, I don't even know. Like, I'm like, I just feel so proud to just being able to just share space with her and watching the way she leads. And I'm just so excited for all the folks. Like, Leah is a, is a record breaker. First transgender we've had, like... I'm just so excited about it. I'm so excited for all these folks. I'm excited for the policies we're going to pass. I always say, like, I was bringing back to 2012. You know, we beat the two, we beat voter ID, and we beat the ban on gay marriage. And then we passed marriage, which was great. But there were so many other issues that impacted queer people, especially low-income queer folks, which a lot of queer folks are. They needed actual financial support, you know. Marriage wasn't actually the top issue for a lot of folks. It was, it was like, keep us safe, you know, um, protect us, you know, and, and we didn't get that done last time. And I'm really excited to follow the leadership of the queer folks in the legislature. And also folks like Mitra and City Hall and folks in Minneapolis. And so I'm really excited to, to just, you know, trust them and, you know, advocate for the policies they recommend. I mean, we just we just got a slate of badasses. Like, I don't even know how else to decide to describe it. And so, I'm just really excited to watch all of them lead. You know, I'm already hearing about some of them getting leadership positions, and so it's just gonna be a it's just gonna it's just gonna be great. I don't even know how to explain it. You know, and I'm and I'm happy that they're going into an environment that's a little bit safer for them. You know, they're actually not going into a space where there's gonna be someone like Tony Cornish walking around with his gun on his hip saying, you know, wild things. It's like, no, it's going to be like folks that actually are happy to have you there, which just, you know, it fills my heart. Um, given the kind of, I really love this question. For me, given the identities that I have, I think um, it's, it's everything to have that type of representation. It is into everything and knowing that specifically we've got queer BIPOC leaders going into that space. I mean, as somebody who's I'm Arab American, uh, primarily Jordanian, my family, you know, first gen, um, somebody who, you know, just 
everything in liquid cries and came out of you totally fine because it just really feels like I remember being a young kid in the legislature in 2010 reporting on it before I had any sense of who I was or who I loved or any of those things and not ever thinking it was a possibility that that space would look like me or that I'd see people who look like me in that space or felt like me and I can't, I, I am going to cry, I can't imagine going into this legislature knowing that as one of the thousands of people who has fought to say, what if we imagine this place if it looked like us? I mean, worked through voices for racial justice for a couple of years with my organizing partner, Brett Bradley was there to put together a whole kind of journalism platform that says, what if we imagine journalism at the Capitol to look like our communities? And now policymakers? I mean, it's, it's not the end of the fight, it's the first step, but at least we're at the starting line now, right? Or at least we can imagine we're at the starting line now. It's, it's, it's such a big deal. Um, but again, I'm going to cry, so I'm going to stop talking. Absolutely. So typically during this segment, we have a word from our Lord, Audrey Lord, that is, which is caring for myself is not self-indulgence. It is self-preservation. And that is an act of political warfare deep in hell. And exhale. With that said, you know, what are y'all's rituals for self-care, community care, and well-being? I have to respond to that. I'm so happy for you. I don't even know how to, I don't know. I'm still, like, on that moment. I just, yeah. I just, like, I don't know. I, that, it's how I feel about, like, we're going to have a Black Women's Senate caucus. Like, that is something that I imagine. I imagine electing a single Black woman, mm. maybe back in go and thinking one day to now, like, having a caucus. And so, I feel like, I resonate with that. And, like, I'm so happy for you. I can see the pure joy as you were describing it and like you deserve a million more representatives that are like you and um i'm just really happy to be on this call i'm like on the verge of tears too like it just feels like we've been working so fucking hard sorry to curse see i'm playing games i'm playing i got too comfortable <laughs> but we've just been working so hard and to finally see some wins and not just like bs like actual reps that have hearts and souls they're not political like wins they're like our neighbors and our friends, and it feels like we're getting closer to a democracy that's maybe a tad bit more representative of us, and um, yeah, so just want to really honor that moment of what just happened, where we're so fast to run to, like, write the bill, and I'm that person for sure, and so really, I haven't even stopped to think about how beautiful this moment is, I've really just been like, who do I need to email, and so thank you for sharing that, and you know, it's an honor to see the joy that was on your face as you described that, so... Yeah, I just want to say that. Yeah, you know, it's not like we can be on the call with you. I'm like, hoping we can grab coffee, do a one to one, work together, fight together. Yes. I still have my eyes sweating over here. I don't know why, but okay. It's going to be a new day. We're not, we don't know what's coming with this legislature. Everything we thought we knew about legislative politics has come out the window in a lot of ways. Yeah. And I just, um, I just appreciate your vulnerability in that moment. And I think like that's what's needed more in politics is the vulnerability. I think we've seen so much like 
um, like when Tana was saying, like gung sling male, like super hyper masculine energy like that. And we need care. We need care. We need love. We need affection. We need to see that these are real people behind these policies that these are affecting. Um, and it goes beyond just like how you feel about things. How do we feel about all of it together? And, you know, I'm not going to quote, uh, <laughs> do like when we all do better, we, when we, when you, we all do better, we do better. Whatever we all that. do better. We all do better when we all do better. Right. Well, and, but, it's, but it's a real quote and it's a real thing that I know a lot of DFO people say or left-leaning people say, but it's, it's real talk. Like we all do really do, do better. Um, Serene, can you tell us what your self-care is then too? Um, my self-care is, I have to remember to self-care better during the legislative session this year. I don't do a good job of it, um, but I am a very active person. I see a personal trainer, I go to the gym, I try and work out regularly, I box, I do karate, I cross it, I do a bunch of things. So I, you know, um, meditation for me usually comes in the form of martial arts because that's just what's better for my brain, so I do that. And I take a lot of walks because um, I have dogs and they require that of me, but it ends up being self-care. Um, but honestly, I'm typically, I, I have three full-time jobs, so I, I stay busy, uh, life is busy, so it's about being really well-organized and about remembering to give myself time every morning to sort of get my day situated. Um, so I do that, and I take the time, I try to take the time I need for me, but as a legislative session, everything goes off the window. Um, and I hold on to the people I love. Um, I hold on to the people who've mentored me and the people who care for me and the people who hold me up and the people I'm fighting for. And, and that's, that's sort of what you got to do. Beautiful, beautiful. And that's all we ask to remind folks to do the self-care as they are doing the heavy lifting on this hard work. Ashe? So we also ask, because this is Power Perspectives, what's your definition of power? I can go ahead. Um, well, I'll say one thing about self-care. Um, I was gung-ho about politics. I was doing everything. I was running a voting rights board. I was working on campaigns. I was doing all of it. 2020, between COVID and George Floyd, I just was like, oh, I'm done. And I actually quit my job. I quit politics. I did nothing for six months. And um, not recommending people just like, stop everything but i had to stop everything because i was going so hard for so many years and now i'm i move at a snail's pace and i feel so fine with it i'm like the person everybody calls and they just like people don't ask me to do things they tell me to do things and now i just don't respond to people if you send me a text that we're trying to do this i'm not i'm not answering your call i'm not calling you back I feel like for a long time I was like a movement workhorse where people just sent me to go do things. And like, I don't do that anymore. I don't even respond half the time. I don't feel bad about it either. Um, and so that's my thing. I'm, I'm working at a pace. I do want to go back to being like full time all in it, but I'm pacing myself and relearning how to care for myself. And so that's where I'm at. And, and I recommend it to other folks that I know are just like all in it 24 7. And then power for me um, is the ability to help others. Like, if you, that's, that's just what comes down to, like having the ability to say, I have enough and now I can use it for others. That's what, that's what it comes down to. Um, and, that, you know, that's how I define power. Someone powerful is someone that is, um, has enough and takes care of others. Um, you know, there are people who have enough and don't take care of others. And that's a different type of power than the kind that I want. Right on. Well, we just want to thank you all um, so much because we are at time now. This has been such a 
fulfilling episode. Um, Siri, if you wanted to answer that question, I think we have time for you to do that. But we want to just give you thanks and give y'all y'all flowers. Uh, yeah, I can say power rising for me is uh, people with the want and the skills and the capacity to come together and fight for something and to and fight for that in a way that they, that they win. Um, it's people who love each other enough to say, I'm going to come to the table with you. And it's people with the power to say, we're going to build that longer table um, so that more people can sit here with us. So. I love that. Thank you so much, Serene. Thank you so much, Wintana. Thank you, Tabitha, just for joining us. Everyone who's watching on the live and on Facebook and just commenting. Um, I just really appreciate you taking the time out to just tell us and just process this important election. All elections are important, but like we just, we're just still processing this one too. So um, is there any way that folks can get a hold of you or any websites or anything like that that you wanted to share in our last few moments? First, I'll say I did notice the commercial was Felicia, so just shout out to her. I definitely heard her voice in that commercial, which I love. Um, I don't know what it was even saying. I just, all I heard was like, is that her? Is that her? And I missed the whole message. But shout out to her because I know that was. Um, I'm on social media, Olivia Woke, so I think that name is so clever. So, it is so clever. Um, yeah, and then email me with Tana MN at Gmail, so always around. Um, see Miriam on Twitter, um, cupcake.org, journalismofcolor.com, um, and, you know, uh, I'm always interested in grabbing coffee with people, love to meet, meet up with them, build those relationships. We, we need to catch up, Siren, because fun fact, we went through OAP together. Hey, hey. Hey. So, so good to be seeing you, like, again. And yeah, actually be- you gotta do that. I'll reach out over email. Absolutely. So, y'all. Y'all listening, be well, drink green, and get sun. Tune in next week. We'll be back for more. Peace. Tune in next week for more Power Perspectives with me, Shavonda Brown, and my co-host, Andrea Pierre. Wishing you wellness. Peace.